Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. Lucilla Onomachado today. But first, we always check in on current or hot topics. And I know you and I uh, wanted to talk about someone special to us today, Harlan. So kick it off. Yeah, we had a you know a close friend of ours, Erwin uh, Birnbaum, who uh, died recently at the age of 88 uh, after a long and, and rich life. Uh, and But I wanted to talk about him a little bit because he exemplified the mentor, you know, and and I was thinking about Irwin. Irwin, you know, I became aware of Irwin, had met Irwin when he became the chief operating officer at Yale when Dean David Kessler had been appointed uh, and he appointed Irwin and, and Ruth Katz, another friend of ours, you know, in leadership positions. And I, I didn't know Irwin so well as a chief operating officer, but as when he retired, I invited him to join us at the Robert Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, a program that helped train physicians in areas of statistics and, and epidemiology, health policy, but also leadership. And and Irwin, of course, had had such a wide-ranging career, uh, been, being at Montefiore and then at Yale and and in, in actually practice, a law practice around health policy that he seemed like a natural to bring in and, and be able to be help and supportive. And and he came in, you know, I wanted to read kind of the words that Leslie Curry wrote to us in an email, said that he was just, Erwin uh, was a fiercely optimistic soul, everyone's cheerleader. Uh, imagine his beautiful fingerprints left on so many. And I, I raise it because oftentimes in academia, you know, people are counting the number of papers or grants or, you know, how big their groups are, or, you know, they're, they're valuing impact in a lot of different ways, but but some of the best ways to make impact and, and how you're among the best at this is is on person-to-person relationships and the way in which you can influence people's lives for the better because you actually care deeply about them and uh, are are just a mensch, you know, just a, a, a good person who seeks to help help others through, you know, what they're going through and, and to make them better. And Irwin was was all of that. And uh I don't know. I just saw it as a moment to pause about people who make impact on others in their lives and what's a life well lived. I really appreciate it because um, almost the opposite of your experience, Irwin was that person to me. I met him immediately upon arriving at Yale for uh, both good and bad reasons involving my um, administrative role in radiology. So I got to know him immediately. My funniest anecdote with Erwin, however, is that as soon as I met him, I somehow had to tell him that he graduated with my mother from college. Um, (laughs) And Erwin was about four years older than I am now. But to my 31-year-old self, Erwin was a much older man who would not be offended by being told that he was my mother's age. And uh, he had never let me uh, live that down. Every single time we met right up until uh, if we had a meeting a year ago, he always told people about that story. He always made me smile a little bit about that. He was a kind man. He helped me through some very stressful times early in my career. You did too, Harlan, by the way. Few people kept me at Yale during the 96 to 2001 period when my job was not fun, and Erwin was one of them. And he and I stayed in touch. He attended uh, some of my classes during COVID by, by Zoom. 
Um, and I, I love that man and everything you said about him is true and more. And uh, I was happy to see how many people have expressed similar opinions on on social media over the last few days. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, someone like that, you know, just by his nature could enrich so many other people's lives. Also in this week, by the way, Howie, you know, there was a perspective piece in the New England Journal of Medicine called What is a Mentor by yes. uh, Suzanne Coven. And I thought it was interesting. She talks about an experience that she had with, uh, you know, going through a period and and she sought out a dean of students that she had had. And, uh, and she just talks about how, you know, she she wasn't sure whether that person would still, you know, be open to being a mentor to her. And the person said in her piece, nonsense, the dean said, come on over. And she says, what he said to me during our brief conversation that day changed my life. And the the power of of those moments, you know, just singular moments where you can play such a key and critical role. I just wanted to read at the end of her piece because I thought it was nice. She said, um, you know, a good mentor makes you feel the way I felt leaving the, the office of my old dean nearly 40 years ago, crossing the street from medical school back to the hospital, more grounded than before we'd spoken and also lighter than air. And, and I just, again, how I know you do this for so many folks, it, it just is uh, probably nothing better, you know, in what uh, opportunities that we have to be able to do that. But um, I just, you know, wanted to remember Erwin today, reflect on that. He did that for so many people, did that for all of us. And, uh, and the importance of mentorship generally. Anyway, just wanted to highlight that. I really appreciate it. Okay. Hey, let's get on to our interview. Dr. Lucilla Onomachado is the current Deputy Dean for Biomedical Informatics and Data Science at Yale Medicine, as well as the Valdemar von Zedgewitz Professor of Medicine in Biomedical Informatics and Data Science, chairing the section of Biomedical Informatics and Data Science at Yale. Dr. Onomachado's interests lie at the intersection of big data and life sciences, and she works predominantly on modeling and data sharing. Before coming to Yale, she helped found the UCSD Health Department of Biomedical Informatics and the Halishiglu Data Science Institute at UC San Diego, and worked for Harvard and MIT in teaching roles, including as Biomedical Informatics Distinguished Chair at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, among many, many other accolades. She is one of the most influential biomedical informaticists in the world today. She completed her medical degree at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil before going on to obtain her MBA from the Sao Paulo School of Business Administration. She later completed her PhD in medical information sciences and computer science at Stanford University. So first, I just, on behalf of Harlan and myself, just want to welcome you to the Health and Veritas podcast. And I want to start off, I went back and looked at, like, when did you get interested in this, thinking that, like a lot of people, this came to you later in your career somehow. And I discovered that, like, you were on top of this topic from the first paper you wrote when you were basically in, in college. How did you become so prescient to know that this is going to be this enormous area of scholarship and, and what drew you to that? Yeah, so first, thanks for the invite to participate. In our education system in Brazil, you have to select whether you go to medical school or computer science or engineering and so on. And I wanted both. I, I wanted both computer science and medicine. 
I decided to do medicine first because I was better prepared for the exams at that time. And uh, once I completed medicine, then I, I started computer science. And uh, administration was, was one of the venues to, to get more exposure to informatics and IT and so on. So I did it in Brazil, but when the opportunities um, were exhausted there, I sought uh, graduate school overseas, uh, Europe, Asia, and uh, North America. And I was lucky to get into Stanford for the degree. Looking through the, your publications over the last 30, almost 35 years, you were hitting on key topics 10, sometimes even 20 years before people would talk about them in, in popular press, natural language processing, artificial intelligence, machine learning. You were working on this really early on. And you were recruited here to help us organize our efforts in this regard in data science and biomedical informatics. But one of the things that strikes me about Yale is that it is, you know, there's a lot of independence, a lot of investigators working in these areas all over the campus, not even just in the medical school. Harlan and I were talking recently about a center that exists on the main campus that neither he nor I was aware of at that moment. And I'm just wondering, when you land at a place like this, how do you go about accounting and meeting, listening and learning about an institution like this, which is by, by definition almost different than any other such institution? I think I was, I was lucky too that my coming was very well advertised. So whoever out there knew data science in biomedicine initiative was coming and they were interested, they, they did come to me rather than having to survey a whole lot. However, I do feel, and I learned uh, actually this February, that not everyone came. And when we set up an AI symposium for the School of Medicine, we found so many other people doing this that I had not heard from before. We had uh, 600 registered people. We had uh, 41 posters and 16 presentations because that's all we could fit. So even though I, we did have a lot of uh, people coming to us and getting secondary appointments with us and so on, there was much more out there. And this is, uh, you know, just, just very exciting as well as hard to coordinate. So I, I see our function mostly of trying to coordinate, uh, matchmake, and create the infrastructure so that all these groups don't have to build their own everything from scratch and try to use uh, at least to some extent uh, an infrastructure that can support initial exploration of um, models and uh, make the data more available. You're at the nexus of all things exciting that are happening in medicine right now, data science, informatics, you know, the technology adoption. It's, it's changing so quickly. I think you probably would be in a good position to say, what do you think it's going to look like in 10 years? I mean, you know, there's, there's lots of speculation about change. Change always occurs slower than you might think in, in medicine. What, what do you expect to see in a decade? I expect... Uh more time uh, for humans to be humans in less time on documentation, less less time on, you know, mechanical 
things or insurance approvals and other things that are, are currently taking a lot of time from clinicians and, and other personnel. So I think if we can automate the, the more mechanical aspects of, of things, of documentation and so on, I think we'll leave more time for uh, actually listening to the patients looking looking at them. And- well, j- just as a follow-up, you know, as I've thought about this, you know, in the last decade, you know, we've had so many advances in technology, information. I, I often, when I start my talk, say, you know, medicine's emerging as an information science. We've, we've never had the ability to be able to access information relevant to our patients in such a streamlined fashion to be able to to sort of be in control of what what is known about a particular patient or condition and, and be able to get access to that. I mean, I grew up, you know, when we were looking at Index Medicus, you know, these large tomes in the library and you would flip through trying to figure out what had been published. And it was a big deal to kind of go there with lug it around you'd look into it. I mean, nowadays, anybody can go to a computer. Our patients can go to computers to get access to this information. Juxtapose that availability with our actual outcomes that we're achieving in healthcare, which are, if anything, getting worse, life expectancy is dropping, comorbidities increasing, you know, on, on every front, we're losing ground in the United States, and actually worldwide. How do you square that because you know it seems like we're we can do more but but we're achieving less mm-hmm. i can tell you it's not because of technology in a way i think it could be worse if technology weren't there uh, but i do agree that um, we can do much better not only in the u.s but worldwide because the, you know the discoveries they're amazing, right? They, they have the possibility of extended life and better quality of life and so on. But somehow the structures that support that delivery of the new discoveries or making it accessible for everyone, um, the structures are not there. So access to care, access to, uh, you know, uh, social services that are needed and so on. That seems to be... Um, kind of declining and the val- even recognizing the value of this uh, other disciplines is something we need to work on, I think. So, so it, it doesn't matter. We know how the patterns are and so on. If the, the, again, the therapies cannot be delivered. One of the things that has changed most in the health system in the last few years has been a greater integration between the medical school and Yellow Haven Health System. And very, very recently, as you know, we've named a new president, named a new uh, chief operating officer. A lot of changes have gone on, including our deputy dean, who we just interviewed on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, Peg McGovern, moving into a physician leadership role for both the medical school and the health system. And it, it raises for me the question of, where is the governance of clinical informatics going and how much you're clearly doing amazing work on the research side, on the data side, the access, the ethics and all that. How much are you currently doing and how much will you be doing in helping the health system realize the value of data science, AI, everything like that? Yeah, and first I'll start by saying uh, the distinction between clinical informatics and bioinformatics or computational biology is 
uh, increasingly less because of, um, for example, precision medicine, where we want the, the right uh, uh, therapy uh, delivered to the right patient, right, to personalize uh, treatments and um, prevention as well. Now, it's highly interdependent, right? If we are, want to be impactful in our region, in our own institution, we need to operate with data from that institution. We have the good um, uh, fortune to have an electronic health record system that is joined, uh, jointly owned by the university and uh, or the medical school and the health system. Uh, thus offering the opportunity to develop uh, joint governance and joint um, data sharing, responsible data sharing, in a way that research can be done. And also the products of this research, models, AI models, and so on, implemented in the health system and measured, right? Because that's an important aspect of it. Do we know that these AI models are doing what they're supposed to do? Do we know that they're doing... Um, well, for the whole population, or are there underrepresented populations that are actually not uh, being uh, benefited by these models and so on? So those are all important considerations that the, the marriage of research and the clinical practice um, becomes so important. So I would say the disalignment between the, the two units is is very critical and was one of the reasons to come. Uh, it's a very large system with a, a highly diverse population in which um, we can discover so many things and apply back. So uh, I would say I see it, uh, the whole informatics, uh, data science in medical AI to be um, belonging to, to both areas uh, some with more implementation and evaluation of outcomes and the others with, um, you know, the data science and the discoveries that need to be made. You know, I, I have, I know we're coming to the end, but I, I have one question around something I've been pondering for a while, and I'd be kind of curious what you think. As these capabilities increase in information science, in the tools to support clinical decision-making grow, what are the consequences for this, for the kind of competencies that we're seeking in clinicians. And I say this as, for example, in my field, cardiology, we're on the cusp of transforming the, the competency examinations, what it means to be board certified, you know, what we expect of people. Historically, we've asked people to sit for all day tests. We've tested their memory and their problem solving abilities on conventional multiple choice testing, pattern recognition. In many ways, the information science revolution is going to augment the ability of clinicians to do this without the need to having rote memorization and pattern recognition, mm -hmm. in fact, exceed our abilities at pattern recognition largely. So do you have thoughts about, as we assess clinicians of the future for their competency, for whether or not they are qualified to be doctors, you know, how is the capability of the information revolution influencing what you're thinking about what's going to be necessary and, and how should we be assessing performance in that era? Well, I, I'll give a personal opinion of that, that, uh, as you said, memorization and ability to arrive at the correct diagnosis, given what um, questions you asked and what the patient tells, uh, will increasingly be automated. I, I 
no doubt about that. Uh, however, the ability to communicate back and to um, explain to the patient and um, understand the circumstances of why, you know, even though this is the most uh, efficacious treatment, you, you're not in a position to do that because you have this other circumstances. I think that will all get better. And um, I must say, when they say the art of medicine, right, and the empathy and so on, I would say that might be more valued than uh, the memorization because that will be done by the computer on the side. That's my prediction. You do know that the recent studies have suggested that the artificial intelligence scores higher on empathy and compassion in interactions with patients. So how do you square that with with what you've just said? Because it may be more important for docs, but I'm having trouble understanding how when it's blinded, doctors interacting with patients, computers interacting with patients, and now a blinded evaluation of the empathy and responsiveness, the machine sometimes scores higher. Well, but remember, this is text, right? Yep. Yep. It's not communicating as we are communicating and, and yep. looking uh, in body language and the whole lot of things. When those uh, comparisons are done in a very controlled manner, I will bet you that the, the doctors would do fine or certain doctors will, will do That's the right better way. and yes, others exactly. not be doing that, yeah. right? One last question from me. I'm fortunate enough to work a lot with sort of tech transfer at the university to see what we're doing university-wide in terms of commercialization of new products. And there's no question that we're seeing an explosion of innovation in this space. And I'm wondering, how do you personally in your role foster that innovation so that we both recruit innovators as well as help our current faculty become innovators in this area? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think the I've seen innovators with, with all uh, characteristics, but some of them don't have patience. And those without patience don't fare as well in academia because that's we, we go by grants that take months to, to be evaluated and so on. And it takes a lot of persistence and so on, whereas industry can be more agile in many ways. Uh, so I think what we we try to do is not, um, you know, uh, prevent people from having ideas and, and, and trying to, to uh, take them out there, but we try to do it in a very um, systematic way so that when you do have a product, you know it works and you know it's good enough in, in, to be out there. So um, it, it is hard because of the funding mechanisms in academia are not as um, plentiful, I would say, and uh, fast as outside. On the other hand, rest assured that when a product comes out of academia, it probably has been way more vetted and, and verified than uh, when it doesn't. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Like I said, we're, we're so lucky you've come. It has been too long before Yale has actually, the Yale School of Medicine has invested in a department. You're building a department. You've recruited extraordinary individuals. You've built relationships across campus. And already there's a, a greater vibrancy to the efforts around uh, informatics and 
and technologic uh, advancements than I, I've seen before. And, and we look forward to seeing what, what happens next. So uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Well, that was, that was terrific, Howie. It's uh, nice to hear Lucilla. She's, she's doing so many different things. I can she tell you there are challenges here bringing change, but she's, uh, she's doing a great job. So let's get to my other favorite part of this podcast, hearing what you've got to say this week. Yeah. So back in April of last year, episode 78, uh, we talked about vaping and lung injury, if you recall. And e-cigarettes remain controversial due to the harms and particularly the explosion of use among young people, even though it's down from its peak, as we discussed. But the one use case that has been promoted as uniformly good is in helping cigarette smokers quit. And there has been some evidence published in this regard. But this week, a large randomized trial has been published that addresses the safety and effectiveness of this approach in comparison with standard of care smoking cessation efforts. So in this study, a a large randomized control trial, there was greater smoking cessation in the e-cigarette group. In other words, 60% of those given e-cigarettes uh, versus 40% of the control group quit smoking cigarettes, tobacco cigarettes. And this is obviously good, but only 20% of the e-cigarette group quit completely, whereas 34% of the control group had quit nicotine completely. So in other words, e-cigarettes are good at helping to quit actual smoking, not as good at helping to quit nicotine. Uh, Perhaps one could argue that they enable longer term use of nicotine in those who might have otherwise wanted to just quit smoking. As to safety and health, more individuals in the intervention group, that being the e-cigarette group, reported adverse events at a statistically significant level, but serious adverse events were roughly equal in the two groups. For reasons that I can't explain and the authors don't discuss, COVID occurred more commonly in the e-cigarette group. And the e-cigarette group also reported more episodes of antibiotic use. Uh, There was some slight improvement in respiratory symptoms in the e-cigarette group otherwise. So e-cigarettes in general, in most ways, are better, better, better. There are a good number of limitations to this study acknowledged by the authors, and this is true of all studies, but it does give us more information of the value of e-cigarettes in a clinical scenario, in a clinical setup, Uh, and it's a little mixed. It helps to quit cigarette use, which is great, but might be supporting the ongoing use of nicotine uh, in some. And while vaping may be seen as just another way to smoke, it does seem from everything we know unquestionably a reasonable tool for caregivers to consider when helping their patients quit smoking. And this is not uniformly accepted uh, outside. So it, one thing I just wanted to raise to you, Harlan, it's, it's amazing to me how long it's taken to do this particular study and even others like it. And I wonder, we let so much research get done from an investigator-driven level Is there a role for more government um, instituted research for fostering this type of research as opposed to letting investigators decide to do this research? Well, I think there could be a prioritization of research that aligns with with needs regarding policy. I've felt this for a long time. You know, that can happen because there are organic changes in society that we actually have no idea what impact they're going to have on health to, to recommendations that have to be made in the moment when there's inadequate evidence, but but we really need to continue to accumulate evidence in order to help us course correct as necessary. COVID pandemic, I think, indicated that, you know, we we were doing things, but we needed to be investing in, hey, 
what is the value of this strategy, that strategy, as opposed to ad hoc, you know, sort of bespoke approaches to do, doing research. There, there should be ways for us to be able to do that. In industry, of course, with A-B testing, every time they roll out something new, they've got something in the background that's evaluating things and determining what its effectiveness is. I think in the public sphere, we need to be able to do this. But uh, you're right to point this out, Howie. Th- these are things you know that we're exposing people without knowledge of actually what the impact is. And you know, there needs to be much more information about this. And, and this is something that starts off as like a commercial product without too much oversight at all from government or regulatory authorities. And it really needed this type of imprimatur of, of good peer-reviewed research. And we have it now, but it's taken a long time. And uh, I think we need to see this incorporated into practice. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought it up today. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Kromoltz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback, keep the conversation going, you can find me on threads at T-H-E number four M-A-N. That's at the number four M-A-N. And I promise very soon I'm going to have a social media strategy and I'm going <laughs> to unveil it on this show. That's right. But yeah, right now you can still find me on X at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E, but but I got to figure this out. And for those of you on LinkedIn, we both are very active on LinkedIn. We read every one of your comments. So let us know, ask questions. We'll, we'll respond to them here. But you can also email us questions, comments, reviews at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from social media and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs or check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. If you like the podcast, or even if you don't, please rate <laughs> and review us on your podcast app, Spotify, Apple. We will always read your reviews and it really does help other listeners find us. Who doesn't like Howie? Of course, everyone's <laughs> going to give you good ratings. Health and Veritas is produced for the Yale School of Management, the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Giel and Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Extraordinary people help us every week. They're amazing. They make very this grateful. podcast what it is. Yeah. Very grateful to them. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.